0: Um, This is the best day of the week, and it should be one that we just rejoice in, that we get to just eat the Word of God and enjoy our fellowship together. Uh, On that note, let's talk about sin. (laughs) That is our next uh, lecture, Module 3, Session 3 in Systematic Theology. We're doing Homardiology Part 2. And just for a note, for some of you who maybe didn't catch this, This module includes uh, some applied theology, a short uh, three-session time of evangelism. I think on the syllabus that you got, it shows those kind of intermingled with these lectures. We're not going to do that. We're doing Bible survey and systematic theology back and forth as normal. Then we'll do those three uh, lectures on uh, evangelism altogether, uh, the last three sessions. So let's pray together and then we'll talk about hamartiology. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this time to be together to look into the truth of your word. And today, even as we think about the doctrine of sin, we would be terrified if we did not also have the doctrine of a savior. And so today, Lord, our hope is in you. Our hope is that you will make all things right, that the Garden of Eden will return, that the sinless creation will be redeemed. Lord, and so we look forward to that. In the meantime, we do have to deal with sin, and I pray that we would do so with knowledge and with understanding of the Bible's solution to sin. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So we did this uh, two weeks ago, but just for fun, because you never get to do this. Uh, Hamartiology is the hardest ology to pronounce. So it is not hamology. It is not hamatiology, Um, So the easiest way to remember is to put the emphasis on the second syllable, hamartiology. So let's say it together. Ready? Hamartiology. There you go. Um, And that comes from uh, hamartia, which means to miss the mark, to be off. And so that's where we get the name hamartiology, the study of sin. Um, Today we're going to look at the problem of sin in particular and the problem of evil in general. And those are two fairly large uh, systematic theology areas. There's going to be some overlap and some repetition on those. And I don't, I, I don't mind that. I think we need to know these things. So let's jump right in and let's look at the problem of sin in particular. <clears throat> this is one of the most verifiable uh, doctrines in the Bible. Um, you, you really, you can't get away from sin in the Bible. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, 1,185 of them include sin. Only the first two and the last two don't. And so, uh, although it's the most verifiable, one of the most verifiable doctrines in the Bible, it's also pretty puzzling. It leaves us with some questions. Where does sin come from? Uh, If God is sovereign, does that mean that He's the author of sin? Did He begin sin somehow and how can sin coexist with a God who is both all powerful and all good how is that possible so let's deal with those some of those questions first of all is God the author of sin well no (laughs) we'll start there he's not but here's some facts first of all because God is sovereign sin is is in, at some level part of God's plan. And I know that that seems contradictory to the fact that God is not the author of sin, but sin is part of His plan. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. God is not the author of sin at all. Uh, Louis Burkhoff in the Systematic Theology, he said this, God's eternal decree rendered the entrance of sin into the world certain, but this may not be interpreted so as to make God the cause of sin in the sense of being its responsible author. And so, uh, I think that's as clear an explanation as we can get. Job 34.10 says, Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. So we don't try to reconcile things that, are, that seem irreconcilable. We go with facts. And fact number one is that sin is part of God's plan. Fact number two, God is not the author of sin. Those two coexist together. So why can God not be the author of sin? Well, very simply because of His character. Isaiah 6.3, He is holy. Habakkuk one thirteen. He can't look favorably upon sin. He can't see it as good in any way. He says in Habakkuk one thirteen, or Habakkuk says this, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Did you catch this? This is Habakkuk asking the question, you're holy, you won't even look at sin. How come you're waiting around when sinners are reigning and, and when sin is happening? And that's, Probably the question we've all had at times. So is God the author of sin? No, he can't be. Who are the participants in sin? This is still under the problem of sin in particular. Satan is the first one to sin. Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19 outlines this. And we would also, um, I don't know why I don't have this up here, but Ezekiel, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15 also speak of satan's fall and it gives five things that satan said that i will ascend i will take the throne i will do this and i will do that things that are all rebellious all based in pride the very first sin is pride that satan wanted to be equal to god and ultimately wanted to be greater than god and so he is the first to sin you have the fallen angels they followed Satan's example. Uh, other angels who also chose to rebel against God. Matthew 25, uh, 41 speaks of these. Revelation chapter 12 speaks of the fallen angels as well. And then you have the third group to sin, humans. Um, introduced by Adam. Uh, at our, in our first homardiology lecture, we talked about Adam bringing sin into the world. Uh, Romans 5 is the... Is the centerpiece of this doctrine that in Adam all have sinned. And so how are we uh, sinners? Well, there's kind of three ways. We are sinners, first of all, by nature. Uh, Ephesians 2.3 says this, that we are by nature children of wrath. That's who you were born to be. We also are sinners because of imputation. We, caught, we talked about this last time, Romans 5.12, that sin has been transferred to us as a result of Adam's sin. And that's easy for us to understand. Uh, there, there are, even in this church, uh, people who have genetic defects passed on by their parents. Well, we have uh, a, the ultimate genetic defect, and that is the fact that we are all headed toward a grave. And that is because of our father Adam um, and his sin. And then the third reason that we're sinners is our choice. I have heard it preached that theoretically a human being uh, can decide not to sin. I I don't believe that for a minute because we have a sin nature. Uh, But what is it that, that, how do you answer the person who says, well, that's not fair. That's not fair that Uh, you know, that the Bible says that you're just a sinner by nature, that you're born that way because of Adam. I don't believe that for a minute. Okay, so mark off number one and number two. So you say you're not a sinner by nature. Say you're not a sinner by imputation. Have you ever sinned? Well, I've made mistakes. Well, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever, and you go through the whole list of sins and ultimately you ask, why did you do that? If you say, ready for this? If you say, well, I couldn't help myself. Oh, so you're a sinner by nature. What's the other option? I did it on purpose. I did it by choice. So you get nailed from three different angles that you are a sinner. So I, I love that question. Why do you sin? Because either way, you're going to, you're going to uh, come up with one of those options. Bigger question. When we're still talking about the, the problem of sin in particular, And then we'll get to the problem of evil in general. Bigger question. Why was sin allowed by God? This is a whole study, a theological study called theodicy. Theodicy is the study of the problem of evil. And the problem of evil, by the way, is only a problem to human beings. It's not a problem to God. Um, The study of the problem of evil, the justification of God in light of the problem of sin and evil. How can God be good when he allows bad things to happen? Or if you take the view that I do from Lamentations 3, 37 and 38, how can God be good when God causes bad things to happen? Lamentations 3 says that everything comes from the mouth of the Lord, both good and bad. So how can he be good? That's the study of theodicy. And here's really the classic problem. Here's the statement. If God is all powerful and if he's all good, why is there evil in the world? Because if he's all powerful, all good and all-powerful, his power ought to be able to make his goodness overwhelm all evil. Um, now, we would say, if you look far enough to the future, that's exactly what he does. He will eradicate and overwhelm all evil. He just doesn't do it as quickly as we want him to. <clears throat> uh, just out of curiosity. Anybody here saved after the year 2000? Anybody? Okay, few of you anybody saved uh, uh after between 1990 and 2000? Anybody? Anybody saved between 1980 and 1990? All right, the hands are getting fewer. Uh anybody saved in the 19th century? No, we won't we won't go there. But aren't you glad that God allowed evil to continue because you were part of it and he saved you out of it? And so that's just a little side note. I'm thankful that God is so very, very patient. But this is, the, this is the classic problem. If he's all powerful and all good, why is there evil in the world? Well, you take these three concepts, God is all powerful, God is all good, and evil exists. Those three are all true. But according to some, it's logically impossible for these three concepts to all exist at the same time. That you can have any combination of two but not three. If God is all powerful, but not all good, then evil can exist. That's a heretical view, of course. If God is all good, but not all powerful, then evil can exist. That also is a heretical view. If God is all powerful and all good, then they would say evil cannot exist. And so what does that lead us to? Uh, It leads us to going back to denigrating the character of God, and we don't want to do that. Now, when we, look at th- when we talk about theodicy, that is also a proper name for viewpoints of the problem of evil, and we call them theodicies. So there are various theodicies, and I'll just give you a, a few here. They're all insufficient. They, none of them work in the real world. There's the theodicy of protest, that, that God can't be fully good, he can't be fully trusted, and yet he's the only option to whom we can turn that basically God is the best we have. Evil is unrecoverable loss. There's no purpose to evil. There's It's senseless. There's no uh, going back. There's no explanation. Um, and so in a sense, uh, how do you get relief? You respond to evil by asking God questions. God, why did you do this? God, why is this happening? And basically the the logical conclusion to this is that the only way to reconcile evil in your mind under a theodicy of protest is to question and denigrate and judge God himself. God, I appreciate the fact that you helped me find my spouse. I appreciate the fact that I I make a good living, but I don't appreciate the fact that you allow evil in the world and I will not worship you for that reason. I'll worship you for Jesus. I'll worship you for goodness in other areas, but I cannot accept the fact that you have allowed evil in the world. How many of you want your kids to say, I love part of you? No, you take all of God or none of him. And so the theodicy of protest, it's insufficient. It doesn't work and you ultimately end up with a heretical view of God where we think we know better than God. Then you have uh, the Irenaean theodicy. The Irenaean theodicy is named after the second century church father Irenaeus. He said that God made the world with evil in it to give humans the opportunity to grow spiritually. The world is a difficult one and so that prepares us spiritually for the world to follow. That, the, that sin in the world acts like the, the gym before the Olympics. That, uh, that you're working out and you're getting stronger because of sin in the world. Well, the problem with that is that it borders on works-based salvation and it doesn't address the justice of God. That there is justice of God toward the evildoers uh, and so... It just is very one-dimensional, that it's something that's good for us now. Now, we would agree with that in that the problems in the world do stretch us and grow us spiritually. It makes us trust the Lord. But to take it to the point that that's the entire purpose of evil uh, leaves out the problem of justice. And then you have the free will defense. There, There's a lot of varieties to this. Basically, the free will defense says that God created the world free of evil But humans are capable of moral choice with actual alternatives. The possibility of freely doing evil is the logical companion of freely doing good. So in other words, because we can freely do good, we must also be able to freely do evil. And there's two versions of this. There's the Arminian version, that God could prevent evil, but he chose to allow for the possibility of evil in order to guarantee freedom, but it wasn't God's will that evil come into the world. So let me ask you this, if anything happens that is not God's will, is God truly sovereign? No. And of course, you know, Armenians don't believe in the total sovereignty of God. If you ask them, do you believe God is sovereign? They'll say yes. Really? Over salvation? Well, no, that was my choice. Which one is it? And so they believe that God allowed for the possibility of evil to guarantee freedom. So what is the true God here, little G? The true God in the, the Armenian version is human freedom and human choice. Um, that that's our God. That's that's sick. That's wicked. That is idolatry at its worst, saying that human choice is more important than God's will. So the Armenian version, we would reject that completely. Then there's the open theism version. Open theism says that God must allow for the possible abuse of freedom. Freedom to love is not truly freedom unless it includes freedom to cause harm. And this is the worst part, that God has a hands-off policy with human freedom. Again, we're worshiping the idol of freedom. God knows the future as only partially established. Did you catch that? Open theism says that God knows the future as only partially established. Put it this way, that the future in God's mind is, is painted with dotted lines, that it's changeable. But God is extremely powerful, and so he can respond to events very quickly as they happen. That puts God responding to things. God only responds to things when he sets up a situation in which he already knows the outcome. Does that make sense? Did God respond to your repentance and issue you salvation? Yes, but how did he do that? He did that by choosing you from before the foundation of the world. So the open theism uh, is is difficult as well. Some problems with all free will defenses. Evil can't exist if God didn't want it to exist. Think about this. We only think in two terms, good and evil what if evil only exists uh, if evil exists because uh, despite the fact that god didn't want it to exist then what other weird permutation of something that's not good might exist we can only think in terms of good and evil what if there's five other versions of something that is not good those would logically exist too so evil can't exist if god didn't want it to exist another problem if evil exists despite god's will then God can't be all powerful and there's no assurance that God is going to overcome evil. Here's where the open theists, um, which is a, a belief system that's dying, by the way, because it doesn't work in real life. Um, here's where the open theists die on the vine. That is the fact that they say God is, is uh, only partially responsible for the future, but he's, hap- he's able to really respond quickly Open theists generally believe that God will ultimately win, but they're only 90% certain. If there's only 90% certainty that God is going to win in the end, that's zero as far as I'm concerned. I, I mean, there's, there's no uh, confidence whatsoever. What does that mean? If there's no assurance that God is going to overcome evil, we have a major problem with one event as characterized by that symbol right there, by the cross. If the cross might not overcome evil, then what is the point? What is the point of salvation? So open theism is complete heresy. Another problem with free will defense. If significant choice, meaning absolute choice, that you can truly make a choice outside of God's will, if that exists, then that must logically extend into eternity. What does that mean? it means that the person in heaven could rebel and be cast out, right? I mean, even people who believe in free will, I'd love to ask this, because um, I grew up around Arminians all the time, and, and, I, and, and I heard them talking about, won't heaven be great, where we're all transformed and changed, and if I could go back in time, I'd love to ask some of them, well, do you believe in free will in heaven? In total free will? That, and you know what they're gonna say? Oh, no, at that point, you can't sin. But on earth, you can, choose, you can be a blind sinner choosing to be righteous, but in heaven, you're righteous, you can't choose to sin. Which one is easier, to be righteous and choose to sin, or to be a sinner and choose to be righteous? We already know it's easier to be a righteous person and choose to sin, because that's what Adam did. He was perfect, and yet he chose to sin. So will that be the case in heaven? No, of course not. So significant, absolute choice doesn't exist. One more problem, if God responds quickly to evil, which is what open theists say, why didn't, why doesn't he intervene? Why why do we see things like when Adolf Hitler came to power in the early 30s, why didn't God, since he could see what was coming at least in dotted lines, why, why didn't he cause an earthquake in Berlin and have Hitler fall into the depths of the earth? Why didn't he do that if he can respond so quickly? Why have we had... Um, to date, somewhere in the vicinity, depending on how you count, between 10 and 20,000 wars on earth. If he can respond so quickly, where is he? So none of those hold water. Theodicy of protest, irony and theodicy, free will defense. So how do you begin to deal with this problem? Well, here's some factors. I think this is a good place to start. Here's some factors to consider there's just a few of them, sorry. In pondering the problem of sin and evil. <clears throat> all of these, let me, let me go back one. All of these have one thing in common. Oh, I'm pointing at the screen, you can't see. There it is. All of those have one thing in common. They're all based in human logic. So what should be our factor to consider? First one, the Bible has to be our primary source. Logic is a secondary source. But all these other explanations start with human logic as a foundation. But that's not, are you ready for this? It's not logical to use human logic because human logic is not logical. Why isn't it logical? Because we're already tainted with sin. How can somebody tainted by sin explain the existence of sin? It's not possible. It's just, it can't be done. We also consider the fact that until we're in glory, all of our questions will not be perfectly answered. It's okay to hit a theological wall and say, this is as much as I know. I know all these bricks in the wall, but I do not know what's over that wall. Another factor to consider, the problem of evil is only a problem from a human human vantage point, not from God. There are paradoxes to the human mind that we can't understand. How is it that I had to make a choice to receive Christ, and yet there is no such thing as absolute human choice and God chose me from the foundation of the world. How do those two tracks ever meet? They don't. Not in Scripture. It is a paradox that we accept. But God has no paradoxes. Um, and all of our attempts to explain them fall short. We also should be careful to remember that God doesn't need to be vindicated. What is theodicy? Theodicy is an attempt to vindicate God, to uh, present God as more innocent than he actually is to explain away God or to explain God's actions uh, he will never appear before the judgment throne of human reason he will never appear before you to say so what did you think I, I don't think God will ever ask us that question what do you think what, why would he care what we think another factor to consider the Bible never assumes that God owes us an explanation for what he does the Bible never says that. There's no place in the Bible that says, just wait and I'll, I'll, I'll explain this to you. I, I think we will have all things explained to us. But the fact is, God doesn't obligate himself to do that. The book of Job is our classic example. Job never received a specific answer as to why he went through tragedies. But he was rebuked for sinning by questioning God. Not in the sense of of. Christ on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a cry of, of help and a cry of, of, uh, for, for mercy and for kindness. Job took God to court. And then near the end of the book of Job, God said, okay, as soon as you can catch a sea monster and as soon as you can catch a dinosaur, then you can take me to court. Oh, I made those. Can you catch one? As soon as you can, take me to court. And God condemned Job for sinning in the midst of the trial. Not for sinning before the trial, but in the midst of it. From Job's vantage point, what happened in his life? He was wealthy, had an incredible family. He was a God worshiper. He was revered by all who knew him. Suddenly, he lost everything. His three best friends told him that it must somehow be his fault and that God has rejected him. And Job uh, sinned against God by questioning him. And he has his nagging wife saying, curse God and die. All these horrible things are happening. Then God appears to Job and gives him the worst dressing down in all of the Bible. Chapters and chapters. Where were you when I made this? Where were you when I made that? And where were you when this happened? Then he turns around and Job's three friends are condemned by God for being so unkind to him. And then Job gets double everything back. He never understood why. I would imagine that when Job went to heaven, an angel handed him Job chapter one, said, I think you'll be interested in this. I I call that the biggest aha in the history of the world. God never says anywhere in Job, I am obligated to explain this to you. I do what I will. Another thing to keep in mind, keep the future in mind. God will restore the sin-cursed world. Remember, the reason evil is such a problem for us is because of one major factor, and that is time. The time is not, does not bind God. A sin that happened 5,000 years ago can still be brought to justice because no human being has ever gone out of existence. They just don't all live on the earth anymore. Every sin that's ever been committed will be brought to justice to that person who committed the sin. So keep the future in mind. And that's the, the last one, that much of our struggle with evil is linked to our perspective in time. That death and sin and tragedy seem permanent, but they will be dealt with by God. So that's the, the specific problem of, of sin. I want to get a little bit uh, more general, and that is just the problem of evil. And this is the most paradoxical question of theology. that How can evil coexist with a good God? Other questions, is God capable of eradicating or preventing evil? And if he is, why doesn't he do it? How can God decide that humans will act evil and yet he has no responsibility? How can he do that? In an age when many in the church now are embracing the superficial faith, John Piper made an interesting comment. He said, quote, the church's vision of God in relation to evil and suffering is frivolous the church has not been spending its energy to go deep with the unfathomable god of the bible in other words if you can't explain something in the in the length of a tweet then it's unexplainable if you can't explain something in a pithy theological saying which is what typical american uh, evangelicalism wants from their pulpits they want a few pithy sayings for a few minutes so we can get to lunch well you can't explain the problem of evil you cannot provide a theodicy in a tweet or in a few paragraphs so remember I said that what you do is you go to scripture and you make a list of facts and so I want to give you a list of truths and we've done these before this is also in the book we did uh, exposing Calvinism exposed it's online so this is exactly the same thing this is going to repeat some previous thoughts so I'm going to kind of bring it all together and I'll go quickly here But truth number one God is good We've already read Habakkuk 1.13 that God is separate from all that's evil. God's goodness isn't measured by suffering. It's not measured by circumstances. It's simply a fact. Psalm 119.68 says, you are good and do good. And by the way, this is expressed by the psalmist who was suffering. That was why Psalm 119 was written in the time of suffering. He expresses confidence in God's goodness. God does good things because he's good. It's his core nature. Again, Job 34:10, far be it from God to do wickedness. God lacks evil of any kind. Truth number 2. God is glorified by his use of evil. And I would say this God is glorified by everything that happens because everything is for the glory of God. God is glorified in the display of his wrath against evil. Psalm 76.10 says that the wrath of man shall praise you. What is this picture? It pictures the powers of of mankind rebelling against God and ultimately in their defeat being forced to acknowledge and glorify God. The wrath of God, the justice of God against sin is a part of his nature. If there is no evil, that part of his nature cannot be expressed, cannot be uh, glorified, cannot be shown. God's wrath will bring him praise from his own people. Did you know that? I, I know we don't sing hymns in praise of the wrath of God very often. Um, but if you look at the one of the hymns in Revelation chapter 19, it is a hymn sung in heaven in praise of the burning, fiery wrath of God on earth. I, I don't know how many verses we could do. You know, thank you for, for hell. Thank you for wrath. Thank you for this. But ultimately... God's wrath causes us to praise. How do we know this? Romans 9.22 says that those who reject the gospel are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known. Known to who? Known to us. And so ultimately, we praise God that He is a God of justice. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Put it this way, recompense glorifies God. To recompense evil glorifies God. So evil exists for this type of glory to come to God. Here's truth number three. God does not do evil, but he ordained that it exists. And scripture demonstrates this seeming paradox. Who is there to speak and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Lamentations 3, 37 and thirty-eight. I love that verse. How do you get more specific about the sovereignty of God? It's all encompassing. It is all uh, it is complete in its scope. I don't even like to use the phrase God allowed something bad to happen. Not according to Lamentations three. It says it came from his mouth. Isaiah 45.7, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. How can we describe evil? Evil is best described as the absence of good. Since God created all things and all things he created are very good. Genesis one thirty one God cannot have created evil. So he didn't create evil. Evil exists by God's permission and through his foreordained choice of those that he created. Foreordained choice is one of those paradoxes. Foreordained sounds like God chose. He did. Choice sounds like it was a real choice. It was. Did Satan truly choose to rebel against God? Just read Isaiah 14. It's sickening what he wants, to, how he wants to replace God. Did Eve truly choose Make that choice. Did Adam truly make that choice? Yes. It was a real choice. The alternative is that a different power is the cause. And therefore, God is no longer sovereign, once again. Evil isn't a glitch in God's plan. It's an integral piece. Because if it's not a piece of of his plan, then his all-powerful nature, his omnipotence is nullified in Luke 22, 22, Jesus said, for indeed the son of man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. God determined that Jesus would go to the cross. Judas would be judged for being an instrument of that cross. The Lamentations 3 passage, which is I think one of my favorites on the sovereignty of God God is achieving his purposes. He's using from what a human perspective are good and bad things to do so. But the achievement of his will is always good. It's always good. It's a divine decree which uses and overrules the wicked acts of mankind to achieve God's purpose. And and the the Bible really makes no bones at all about assigning the existence of evil to the permission of God's providence. There's, there's There's no contradiction there. But God's holiness is never, ever compromised. So God doesn't do evil, but He ordained that it exists. It proves Him to be the only God. By the way, the Isaiah 45, 7 passage, verse 5, before that, God states, I am the Lord, there is no other besides me. There is no God. The fact that God is in control of all things proves He's the only God. So when bad things happen, it's not because some evil God has thwarted the good intentions of a kindly but ineffective grandfather God. By the way, that's the theology of the Pentecostal church, that Satan is almost as powerful as God, and if God is having the bad day and Satan's having the good day, then you're going to have a bad day. That there's this battle somehow that somehow sometimes Satan wins, sometimes God wins. No, read the history of Satan or listen to my 10-week series on Satan and his schemes, and you'll see that every time Satan does something evil, He is on God's leash going exactly where God directed him. Does God touch the evil? No, Satan does. But he's going right where God directs him. Truth number four. The created, not the creator, is culpable for evil actions. We are responsible for evil actions. Isaiah 66, 3 and 4 describes people who willfully choose to disobey God. And as a result, God says, I will choose their punishments. They chose that in which I did not delight. In other words, people chose to sin, so God chose the punishment for them. God placed before His people a choice within His divine limits to choose His ways or not. The choice of evil makes them completely culpable. We're responsible for that. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, Behold, I have found only this, that God... Made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Evil actions aren't the product of ignorance, but of of devious schemes. And God is completely just in His punishment of the evil doer. Uh, I was looking at Romans chapter five, uh, verse thirteen, which has an interesting uh, verse that says something to the effect of: Before the law, men weren't counted; uh, men's sins weren't counted against them. And that's a that's a difficult passage. What Paul is saying in the overall scope of Romans 5, though, is that even before the law of God existed, mankind sinned by a different law, and they're condemned by a different law. What is that law? Romans 2, the law of conscience, that the law of God is written on your heart. Every human being going all the way back to Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel knew that murder is wrong, and yet there was never a law written to say murder is wrong, but they knew. And so we can never claim ignorance. Well, I sinned because I didn't know it was a sin. Yes, you did. You did. You have a conscience. Truth number five, God's relationship to evil has not been fully disclosed. This is one of my favorite ones because it kind of is our ace in the hole here. It hasn't been fully disclosed. Scripture tells us all that God wants revealed about his relationship to evil, but the Bible stops short of revealing exactly how God ordains evil and yet remain separate from it. Now, just because I can't piece that together doesn't mean it's not true. I can't figure out how a, a, a certain electronic device works. I don't know how an electric razor works. I don't know how electric electricity works. Just because I can't explain it doesn't mean it's not true at all. There's certainly a tension. Evil exists. It hurts. God is good and His nature remains constant. But one doesn't eradicate the other. I can't be at peace with evil, but as a Christian, I can be at peace with God. I can trust in His nature. I'm not going to like evil. I'm not going to say evil is okay, but I'm at peace with God because He will do exactly what's right. There is a complete answer to the problem of evil, and I think that would amaze us at the depths of the wisdom of God, Romans 11.33 would tell us this, that, you know, how do you explore the depths of God's wisdom? But we would say that the problem of evil is beyond our capacity to exhaustively understand. Why? Because God is beyond our ability to exhaustively understand. Why, why, is he, why would he be obligated to explain everything to us? He's not. Here's truth number six absolute freedom cannot exist, it's not possible. The logical conclusion of absolute actual freedom is freedom completely devoid of God's influence. Even those with the free will defense that I told you about earlier, who claim Jesus Christ as Savior, they don't value total choice in practice. They don't actually believe that. They look to Scripture, they look to prayer, they look to the Holy Spirit to lead them. Well, but I want to make a free choice. Well, I want to do what God wants me to do. That's not free choice then. The Bible never says that humans are free in the sense of being outside of God's control. I, I always uh, enjoy thinking about Arminians who pray for their lost relatives. Well, why not go to the lost relative and just say, make a free choice? Why are you praying to God to manipulate them to be saved if you really believe in free, free will? We pray, for the saved all, we pray for the lost all the time because we know it is a work of God. If we were capable of making free choices that are complete, we would be equal with God. How free are you? You're as free as a created being can be. You make conscious, real choices that have actual consequences. If you choose to eat a bag of carrots or a bag of Cheetos, those have two different consequences and they both were your choice. But that's within the purview of God's uh, creation. There's one scripture that completely devastates the idea of absolute freedom. That's Hebrews 1 3, that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. All things are upheld by Him. He's sustaining the galaxies, He's sustaining the atoms, and everything in between. Proverbs twenty-one one says, The king's heart is like channels in the water of in I'm sorry, like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. That God asserts his sovereignty even in the privacy of human thoughts truth number seven sin and death entered at a certain point of time this gets closer to the heart of the answer to the problem of evil what's the answer it is the gospel the gospel is the answer romans five twelve says that through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin every human being has been poisoned by sin we are in essence adam himself And the bent toward evil and the inevitability of death haunts all of us. But even though Adam is responsible for the entrance of sin, humans are still responsible for their own sin. We have only one recourse. There's only one option, and that's to submit to the work of Christ in salvation, to pay the price for that sin. At some point in your very, very young existence, you made a choice to consciously and willfully, not as, a, not as a baby that doesn't know what they're doing, doesn't know good from evil, as the Bible says, but you made a, a choice to do something willfully that you knew was wrong. The book of Revelation, chapter 20, says that every human being has, as it were, books assigned to them, and they start off Blank they start off blank. When a baby is born and cries at that moment, is the baby sinning because he's not trusting the Lord that he's in the world? No, of course not. The Bible says there's a point at which a small child doesn't know good from evil. But there's a point in which there was a first entry in that book. And from that point on, whatever angel was making those entries or however that works, he couldn't write fast enough. Like, man, this guy's going through it here. And And those books after books after books have been filled. Every wicked thought, every wicked deed, every wicked word, all of them are recorded in those books. Why? Because sin entered at a particular time, and from that time now, all have sinned. Truth number eight. God vanquishes evil and eradicates the effects of sin. He will vanquish evil and eradicate the effects of sin. Scripture gives comfort to the suffering Christian and points the suffering unbeliever to the gospel. You know, I think a great way to present the gospel to people is is any reasonable person can see that there's wickedness in the world, that there are things that are wrong. Um, and and to present the hope, wouldn't it be great to worship a God that's going to make all this go away someday? At the moment, Christ has delivered the Christian from the penalty of sin, Romans 8, 1 and 2, and the Spirit of God Counters our tendency toward evil, Romans 8:13 and 14 we don 't sin as much as we used to, and hopefully in our progressive sanctification, that sin is decreasing over time, but in the future there's no more sin, no more evil. Revelation 21 and 22 death is defeated First Corinthians 1526 there will be a final funeral. You know what the Bible says the final funeral is, the funeral of death, the death of death itself. Revelation 20. The cross put to death human sin. Resurrection guarantees our future invulnerability to sin. And any suffering that we undergo, according to Paul in Romans 8.18, is completely overshadowed by the glories that are to come. Truth number nine. Satan's role in suffering is completely under God's dominion. Satan has been given a measure of temporary rule on the earth. I put some verses up there for you. Daniel two twenty 20-21 states that all power belongs to God, though the events, times, seasons, and rulers of history are determined proactively by God. When Satan suggests that God torment Job to show that Job only serves God selfishly, God gave Satan permission to afflict Job. Why? To prove Satan wrong. God gives Satan permission to afflict Job, but He put limits on him. You can't touch his body. Then Satan said, well, touch his body and he'll, he'll uh, curse you. And so he says, you can touch his body. You can't kill him. Satan wasn't uh, Job's focus. God, Satan wasn't uh, what Job was thinking about. Job ultimately acknowledged, at the end of the book of Job, acknowledged that God has absolute rights over all that is his. And so Satan is, was, in essence, under God's dominion. 2 Samuel 24.1 recounts the Lord moving David to take a census, and that it was sinful. First Chronicles 21.1 says that Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Sin in Israel had uh, been brought to a stage where judgment was necessary. Those two texts present the same truth from two different vantage points: God directed Satan tempted, and David sinned. What is in between there? God did not cause David to sin. David uh, was sinned because of his own nature and because Satan tempted him. One more truth: God uses evil to bring Good to the Christian. God uses evil to bring good to the Christian. Jesus suffered willingly. Hebrews 12.1 says, For the joy set before him, he knew that there would be a happy ending, although he first would suffer death. Jesus knew the entire story. And, and even though Jesus knew the whole story, did he go to the cross skipping and whistling? I know what's going to happen. No, he cried out from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only person in history who's asked that question who knew the answer. He knew exactly why. And he knew the outcome. And yet he still cried out to God. He still was in anguish. He still bled real blood and experienced real pain. Now for us as mere mortal sufferers, God's purposes aren't that immediately apparent. But we do trust God that he has a purpose that's good. I mean, we could have skipped a lot of uh, a lot of uh, effort here and just gone to Romans eight twenty eight. This is our cornerstone, isn't it? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. If we actually really believe that twenty four hours a day, we would be so peaceful. We would be so happy, so content. This horrible thing. You ever have one of those days where you get to 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon and so many things have gone wrong that you're ready to go back to bed just to avoid the rest of the day? You're like, what's going to happen next? You start to get paranoid. You know, open the door, get stung by a bee, step outside, something horrible happens. You're like, what's going on? If we really believe that, okay, God causes all things to work together. All things. How do you give comfort to the suffering? To yourself when you're suffering? The context of Romans 8.28 is the end times high point for which God has planned all things. It's the Christian looking ahead to a time when God will bring all things into perfect order, when all things will be known and understood. The working together, listen carefully, the working together of all things suggests a target point and an arrival moment. It is a contribution toward a final goal. And I believe with all of my heart that God will Uh, through some supernatural means whether it's verbal explanation or just your knowledge all the things that ever happened to you you will have along with job you will have your name chapter one your name chapter one and two here's the real reason for all of these things and i believe with all of my heart that when you see the wisdom of god if you could rewind your whole life and go back to being a toddler and you could tell god okay do everything exactly the same again that's how wise his plan is you would not change a thing you would let it be okay we also see that there's immediate good verse 29 speaks of the destiny of every believer to be conformed to Christ's likeness that all things work toward this end Hebrews 12.10, suffering is a purifying agent that increases holiness. So many good things that happen. And Romans 8.28 leads the suffering all the way back to the gospel. The gospel has to be your focus because the promised happy ending only happens for the saved. You, You can give no hope to the unbeliever who's going through suffering except to say you need to run to the cross. Well, will that fix my problem? Not immediately, but ultimately it will. The Christian looks to the gospel for joy and the unbeliever looks to the gospel to solve the evil in his own heart, which is the big problem. When an unbeliever says, I have trouble believing in all the evil in the world. I have trouble believing in God rather because of all the evil in the world. I think a great question is to ask, well, how do you have trouble? Do you have trouble believing in God because of the evil in your own heart? What are you going to do about that? You can't even solve that, much less the evil in the world. One last little thing. Understanding the problem of evil kind of applied to typical life situations in which God is often blamed. There's three categories of those who question the problem of evil. We'll call these the cynic, the searcher, and the suffering. The goal of the cynic is to discredit the existence or the character of God. You see, evil exists, therefore God either must not exist or God is a bad God. The searcher has philosophical and theological concerns about how God and evil are juxtaposed. And they try to figure God out. And they come up with theories like the Irenaean theodicy or the the theodicy of protest. And they come up with a theory and we saw that they all fall short. The suffering may or may not be a Christian, but his immediate concern is the painful life situation and God's part in it. And so... You as a Christian, don't be a cynic, obviously. We, we trust in God. Don't worry too much about the theological concerns except to know that God is good and he works all things together for good and we have great peace in that. Whether the categories of real life situations that this can affect, you have the tragedy of massive loss of life, um, you know, the, the dealing with the, what we call the innocent victim problem. Is there any innocent victim according to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God? No. If 5,000 people die in an earthquake, some were saved, and therefore that was God's destiny for them, and they are in heaven. Some were not saved, and they were going to be judged for their sin anyway, and that was the moment God decreed that it happened. So the problem of evil doesn't affect that. God is sovereign. Personal tragedy and suffering. I think that's where it hits us the most. Why are you allowing this to happen, God? because it's part of my plan for you that's the answer it's part of my plan for you does that mean you don't pray for relief no of course not pray for relief you hope that that's god's plan for you as well does prayer change things absolutely because god knew you were going to pray if you don't pray enough are you going to suffer more absolutely how does that work no clue no clue god commands to be patient in suffering and he commands us to pray. He has ordained certain events and he commands us to pray that they would be lessened. Jesus even said in the last days, pray that they may be shortened even though he's already set up the time. So I hope this has helped a little bit. It is the greatest theological problem. We tried to cover it in 50 minutes. That is inadequate. So um, I encourage you to study those verses on your own. If you take one thing away from today, trust the Lord when horrible things are happening, it is his plan. And the ending at the end of this movie called Redemptive History is going to be spectacular. It's going to be spectacular. And we'll have 50-yard line seats to that, uh, that ending. Let's pray for a moment. Thank you, Father, for these few moments we've had to inadequately explain a an eternal, unfathomable set of truths. Lord, I pray for every person here especially those who are suffering, Lord, that you would bring them through it in a way that is pleasing to you, that their main goal would be to trust you. And yes, we pray for relief, but mostly we pray for great honor towards you that we would act in a way that's becoming those who trust in Christ. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.